Hi, this is Paul Starr. In the previous episode of Law, Institutions, and Public Policy, I made the case for thinking about the economy institutionally. Economies are socially embedded, embedded in legal rules and social relationships. We've seen this from the beginning of the course. When we discuss contract, institutionalized rules not only constrain choices, they also empower people, and they often empower some people more than others. The structure of the family and gender relations, labor markets, money and finance, debt and credit and property, these and other institutions shape how economies work, in part because they allocate power in economic relationships. I also began a discussion about capitalist enterprise and the capitalist economy as a whole that we'll be continuing over the next several weeks. Drawing on the sociologist Max Weber, I define capitalism as an economic system based on rational accounting, rule of law, and free exchange, in which the control of enterprise is chiefly vested in those who provide capital or in their agents. This definition, as I pointed out, refers to enterprises, but not to corporations. Enterprises can take many legal forms, including, for example, sole proprietorships and partnerships. Corporations have come to dominate capitalist economies only since the mid to late 19th century. Today, the term corporation brings to mind business corporations. But if you think business corporations came first and other types came later, you've got the historical order backward. As an institutional form, the corporation goes back to medieval Europe. At that time, corporations were communities. They included monasteries, towns, universities, hospitals, and guilds, which under specially granted charters had certain rights, such as rights to hold property and to govern their own affairs. Today's business corporations are not communities of this kind. The shareholders generally have no social relationship with the people who work for the corporation. And the corporation's operations may be so dispersed that the term community doesn't apply in any sense. Rather, the corporation is an entity that enjoys certain rights and privileges as a legal person. It's these rights and privileges that are the source of both the economic value and the danger that corporations represent. Three aspects of those rights and privileges are especially important. The limited liability of shareholders, the perpetual existence of the corporation, and the state's gift of legal personhood to the corporation. The first of these rights and privileges, limited liability, is crucial. Indeed, so important that corporations that we're talking about are often referred to as limited liability corporations or just limited corporations. What this means is that the shareholder's liability extends only to the value of their investment. If a company goes bankrupt or is found liable for violating laws, neither its creditors nor the government can go after the shareholders. In other words, the corporation is a means of asset shielding. The limit in limited liability is the investor's protection against liability. It's a limit on their downside. There's no limit on their upside, their potential profit. That's a huge advantage for corporations in attracting investment. Limited liability makes it easier to pool capital from large numbers of investors. The second of the privileges that corporations enjoy, perpetual existence, is another big advantage. Corporations can go on forever. 
At least, death is not inevitable, as it is for mere mortals. That may permit longer time horizons. Corporations can make investments with a long-term payoff. They can also potentially avoid the complications and costs of inheritance, including taxes. Third, legal personhood enables a concentration of authority. It reduces the inefficiencies of multiple ownership by concentrating the powers of ownership in a set of officers chosen by the corporation's governing board. The separate legal existence of the corporation may also enable it to do things that the individual officers would not otherwise be willing to do for fear of their own legal liability. The corporation's formidable advantages for investment are also the source of concern about its dangers. Liability is the basis on which people are held accountable for their debts, for the harm that they do to others. Suppose we admitted, sorry, suppose we eliminated legal liability entirely. There'd be a lot more recklessness. A great deal of mischief can go on through a corporation, precisely because the investor's liability is limited, and because the individual executives can make decisions behind the veil of the corporation and thereby possibly escape any individual punishment for abuses they commit. Moreover, although they are supposed to be chosen by the shareholders, the executives may in fact be self-perpetuating and may use their power to benefit themselves or the majority shareholders to the detriment of minority shareholders or other interests. The concerns I'm raising are both very old and very recent. For centuries, the concern has been that corporations may acquire too much power, too much political power, too much market power, and that they can use that power to perpetuate, to perpetrate, and get away with economic abuses. The financial crisis and Great Recession of 2007 to 2009 highlighted the problem of corporate impunity. When banks and other corporations are so big that they are too big to fail, their executives may escape any personal accountability. The Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United, discussed in the reading from Adam Winkler's book, We the Corporation, highlighted the potential of corporations to use their wealth to accumulate political power as well. When I say these concerns about corporations are centuries old, I have in mind some of the great scandals and financial disasters in history. Going back to the South Sea Bubble, 1720. In 1711, Britain chartered a corporation to deal in government debt and also granted it a monopoly on trade with Spanish America. The South Sea Company, as it was called, failed to make any significant profits in trade, but its stock inflated in a great bubble with handsome profits for some insiders. The collapse of the company in 1720 led to the passage of Britain's Bubble Act, which set restrictions on the use of the corporate form. The suspicion of limited liability corporations lingered long afterward. When Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations in 1776, he was still skeptical of the value of the limited liability corporation and argued against making it generally available for business enterprise. Yet in the 19th century, exactly the opposite happened. The corporation became the dominant form of enterprise, though under different legal rules than those that had shaped its earlier development. We think of the business corporation as a private enterprise that is supposed to compete with other enterprises in free markets. 
But in their early history, business corporations were understood in a different way. They had a public mission and often enjoyed state-granted monopolies. Despite the failure of the South Sea bubble, of the South Sea Company, Britain and other European countries had a long history of chartering corporations to carry out public purposes of various kinds. Monopolies were a standard part of the deal. Monopolies, for example, in overseas trade and settlement. The East India Company, chartered in 1600, not only engaged in trade, it took on military and governmental functions and effectively served for centuries and as, a, as an extension of the British government in India. The early colonies in British North America were also originally settled by corporations, the Virginia Company and the Massachusetts Bay Company. Were these public corporations or private corporations? Well, they were both, and they were neither. They didn't fit into the categories we use today. They mixed together functions that we now separate. And that mix of functions gave rise to conflict. In colonial America, tensions developed between the original corporations that held chartered powers on the one hand and the settlers and later immigrants on the other. But from the standpoint of the crown, corporations were a relatively cheap way of extending the empire. Even after independence, corporations continued to need special charters from government. Such charters were given on the premise that the corporation would perform a public service. When state legislatures enacted such charters, they did so typically declaring a public purpose even when the corporation had investors who expected a return. Corporations were supposed to have a public service mission, and they were often granted a monopoly to accomplish that mission. This pattern came to an end in the first half of the 19th century. The history of the business corporation in 19th century America is a history of the stripping away of both the public mission and the monopolies that went with it. The states stopped imposing public obligations on corporations, and they also offered them less protection from competition. A distinction between public and private corporations began to emerge in this period. In a key case in 1819, Dartmouth College versus Woodward, the U.S. Supreme Court held that, Matt, that, New, that New Hampshire could not revoke the college's original colonial charter and convert Dartmouth into a public corporation under the direct control of New Hampshire's governor. In another important case from that era, the Supreme Court ruled that it would not presume a monopoly if a state had not expressly granted one. In 1785, Massachusetts had granted a charter of incorporation to a group of private investors who proposed to build a bridge across the Charles River between Charlestown and Boston to compensate the investors in the Charles River Bridge Company for the risks they were taking. The state granted them a right to collect tolls for 40 years, which it later extended to 70. This bridge was so successful that another group of investors proposed building a second bridge, the Warren Bridge. And in 1828, the state awarded that group a charter. The Charles River Bridge Company then sued, claiming the state was depriving its shareholders of their property and endangering the security of shareholders in all corporations. But the majority of the Supreme Court ruled against Charles River Bridge in a decision that emphasized the community's interest in economic growth. And here's what the court said. 
in a country like ours, free, active, and enterprising, continually advancing in numbers and wealth, new channels of communication are daily found necessary, both for travel and trade, and are essential to the comfort, convenience, and prosperity of the people. A state ought never to be presumed to surrender this power, because the whole community have an interest in preserving it undiminished. And when a corporation alleges that a state has surrendered for 70 years, its power of improvement and public accommodation in a great and important line of travel, a community have a right to insist, in the language of this court, that its abandonment ought not to be presumed in a case in which the deliberate purpose of the state to abandon it does not appear. While the right of private property while the rights of private property are sacredly guarded, we must not forget that the community also have rights and that the happiness and well-being of every citizen depends on their faithful preservation. The court was not saying that if Massachusetts had explicitly given a perpetual monopoly to Charles River Bridge, the state could eliminate it without compensation. The court was refusing, however, to infer a perpetual, a perpetual monopoly because the public interest, the interest of the community, did not favor such a presumption. In this same period, beginning with New York in 1811, states were enacting general business incorporation laws that enabled anyone to create a corporation by filling out administrative forms, meeting minimal statutory requirements and paying a fee. In other words, the states did away with special corporate charters that legislatures had previously given out one by one. Those charters had enabled politicians to confer privileges on their friends or members of their party, a pattern that today would be called crony capitalism. The adoption of general incorporation laws reduced the crony capitalism problem. In one sense, general incorporation laws were anti-monopolistic, in that they opened up access to the limited liability institutional form to new groups who didn't need a legislature's special permission to form a corporation. But the laws also resulted in a dramatic change in the institutional structure of the economy as it became populated with corporations that then grew to unprecedented scale and scope. In due course, some of these firms acquired monopoly power in national markets beginning in 1866, when Western Union Telegraph bought up its last major competitor in the telegraph industry at a time when there was no federal antitrust law. So we have two distinct phases in the history of corporate monopoly in America. State-granted monopolies in the early republic and market-generated monopolies beginning right after the Civil War. It wasn't until 1890 that Congress enacted the first antitrust law, the Sherman Antitrust Act. During the 19th century, beginning with railroads and telegraphs and later uh, spread to uh, manufacturing, multi-unit multi firms of unprecedented scale and scope uh, developed nationally and eventually beyond national borders. And these corporations were increasingly run by their executives rather than by their owners a transformation known as the managerial revolution. The enterprises of the 18th and 19th century and many corporations of the 19th and early 20th century 
had primarily been family health. And the term family capitalism is often used to describe the capitalism of that time. With the transfer of power to management came the rise of managerial capitalism. Even today, family-controlled firms haven't disappeared, but many more corporations are professionally managed. The rise of the large management-run corporation separated ownership and management and raised important legal and political questions about the very nature of the corporation and its obligations. In an influential 1932 book, The Modern Corporation and Private Property, Adolph Burley and Gardner Means held that the separation of ownership and management changed the way the law should treat corporations. And here's what Burley and Means wrote. The property owner who invests in a modern corporation so far surrenders his wealth to those in control of the corporation that he has exchanged the position of independent owner for one in which he may become merely the recipient of the wages of capital. Such owners have surrendered the right that the corporation should be operated in their sole interest. But what other interests are there? The interests of a company's workers and consumers, the interests of its local communities, the interests of the public at large, for example, the interests of the public and the corporation's impact on the environment. In this view of the corporation, what's often called the stakeholder model, the corporation is at the nexus of a whole array of interests and should be run in line with the interests of all its stakeholders, not only its shareholders. But while the period from the 1930s to the 1970s saw the rise of a stakeholder view, the 1980s began to turn in the opposite direction toward what is often called the shareholder rights revolution, the growing predominance in the law of the view that the shareholders' interests are the sole interests in which corporations should be operated. And this division between the stakeholder and shareholder views of the corporation continues to be at the center of arguments today about corporate governance. Finally, to round out this story, I come back to the problem that worried critics of corporations from the beginning, that they might acquire so much power that it would be hard to control them. In 2013, testifying about the role of banks in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, Attorney General Eric Holder told the Senate Judiciary Committee, I'm quoting him, I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to prosecute them. When we are hit with indications that if we do prosecute, if, if we do begin bring a criminal charge, it will have negative impact on the national economy, perhaps even the world economy. Holder later tried to walk back that statement, but the views he expressed are clearly part of the explanation for the failure of the Justice Department to pursue criminal prosecutions for the malfeasance of banks and other financial institutions and bringing on the financial crisis that erupted in 2007. Instead of criminal prosecutions, the Justice Department adopted a relatively new approach, so-called deferred prosecution agreements, or sometimes non-prosecution agreements, in which companies agree to make management changes pay fines, and thereby, and thereby avoid a potential conviction under a criminal statute. Part of the reason for the absence of individual criminal prosecutions 
as Brandon Garrett writes in his book, Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations, is that it is, and I'm quoting uh, Garrett here, is hard to hold employees accountable in complex cases where many people took part in decisions. It's also the case, uh, as Brandon Garrett points out, that Congress enacts new criminal laws intended to bolster regulations, but it is perennially unwilling to provide adequate resources to many agencies to carry out enforcement of those regulations. As a result, Garrett writes, usually no one goes to jail in cases of corporate malfeasance. And if some employees are prosecuted, there are always lower-level employees who carried out the decisions rather than the executives who ordered them. This is exactly the problem that worried critics of corporations going back to the 18th and 19th centuries. The power and anonymity of the corporation could be a screen for individual malfeasance. Brendan Garrett writes, corporate criminal prosecutions serve a distinct purpose, to punish serious violations and grossly deficient compliance. And this purpose is not served if companies obtain kid glove non-prosecution deals in exchange for cosmetic reforms. Corporate convictions should be the norm, and in special cases in which prosecutors defer prosecution, they should impose deterrent fines and stringent compliance requirements. That Brandon Garrett's view seems almost utopian is a measure of the power that corporations wield today. We'll continue this discussion in class as we move on to Katharina Pistor's book and her chapter on cloning legal persons.